0: This is the Soil Sense podcast, where we believe that building healthier soils is not just a prescription, but rather a pursuit. It's a journey that requires collaboration, curiosity, and communication among farmers, researchers, agronomists, consultants, and extension. You're going to hear their stories and discover how and why they're working together to make sense out of what's happening in the soil. There. welcome back to another episode of soil sense i'm your host tim Hamrich. on today's episode you're going to hear from four different farmers and one crop consultant about their perspectives on tillage tillage or lack thereof can be in some circles kind of controversial, and often it's treated as a form of identity. You either are this type of tillage person or that type of tillage person. What you're gonna hear from today though is a more practical approach from people trying to reduce the negative effects of tillage, but keep the necessary tools in their toolbox when they need them for productivity and profitability and to solve agronomic problems. In order of appearance, today you'll hear from Gilby North Dakota farmer Greg Amundsen, crop consultant Dr. Lee Breeze, Arvilla North Dakota farmer John Amit, East Grand Forks Minnesota farmer Matthew Kruger, and Brinsmade North Dakota farmer George Herman. All of these interviews were conducted at Agronomy on Ice back in February. We were in the very popular Anheuser-Busch Ice House, so there will likely be a little bit of background noise from time to time on this episode, but the content is worth sticking around for, starting with Gilby, North Dakota farmer Greg Amundsen, who says when it comes to tillage and soil health in general, labels are a part of the problem. There's a tendency to want to put everyone in some sort of box, but the last thing anyone wants to do when it comes to soil conservation is to limit themselves.
1: One thing I've really been struggling with lately is labels. The labels, well, you're a no-till farmer. You're, you're this, you're that. Well, yes and no. You know, we, we try a no-till, and that's our philosophy, but I'm not afraid to run our vertical till out there if we have to. I mean, there are circumstances. So I struggle with labels, and I know... There was an article that I was part of on uh, Successful Farmer this spring or a couple months ago, and I've heard a lot of comments, well, you're a no-till farmer. Yeah, that's what the article said, but I don't like labels. You know, I told them I didn't want that label used because that's not what I am. I'm a conservation-minded farmer. I'll do what I have to do. If I have a weed problem that I can't control, if I have you know, erosion issues I have to work with or the ground's sticky, or I will do what I have to do to get a crop. You know, the labels be damned pretty much.
0: Joining Greg in this particular interview is Dr. Lee Breeze, crop consultant for Central Ag Consulting. Lee has a knack for analogies and he shared a great one for looking at tillage as a tool. You throw away some of these these ideas of what it has to be. If you open up to more options, like
2: I can do a little bit of tillage to fix a significant problem. Like soil isn't just gonna move on its own. If you were forced into a bad decision with a wet summer, you had to spray in order to control your weeds because the resistance is a real thing, and you had to get control of them, so you cause ruts for sprayers. It's not just gonna get better on its own. I always say the whole thing like if you had an appendicitis, you can't just wait for it to go away, right? You have to get treatment. And they may have to do surgery. It may be a little aggressive you'll heal. The same thing is here, but I'm not going in for surgery every two weeks or every year or whatever, just because, right? So this is the thing. You'll have a real reason to go do what you're doing. And if it's a real reason, it makes sense, you'll do it. But you're looking through that soil health lens. So you have to fix that field in order to make it manageable. That's what Greg's doing. He's doing something that doesn't fit the quote unquote no-till marker, but it's getting his soil health journey because now he's fixed that field, let it repaired, rebuild it again, in that spot, which is a little frustrating, but it's better than leaving that wound wide open. So the label thing, I would like to kick in here a little bit, because I think that's one of the negatives I find in my profession with the agronomy profession is being labeled as a soil health person or an oil person. I get the same labels, Greg, the same distractions and the same snickers or whatever you want to call it. And I think that's one thing that's holding some agronomists back is being labeled, I'm part of this group. So then people assume... Well, you no longer support this practice or that practice. No, I support diagnosing the challenge, finding the right solutions, putting them in the practice at the right timing, whatever they may be. That to me is more of a soil health thing. But again, we're looking through that lens. Like what can we do to protect our soils, manage our soils well? And sometimes it is a little more aggressive than Twitter would like it to be. And they'll give you a
0: hard time. Well, that's fine. Still needs to be done that way. And Greg says this is generally how he approaches his own soil health, by looking at what a field needs in that particular situation, in that instance, and providing that while managing any of the so-called side effects along the way.
1: Lee explained it really well. I mean, it just, I hate being classified in a box, because then you feel like you're limited to what you can do. It's sad, but that's the world we live in.
2: Well, they'll see you hook onto the software and go, oh, I thought you were a no-till farmer. What are you doing? I am a reduced-till farmer. I have to go fix a problem. And I'm not afraid to use the right tool to do it.
1: So yeah, it's for that, you know, if we have to do something like that, we'll do what we have to do. But on the backside, we're always thinking, how do we remedy this, what we just did? How do we make it better? Now, we had to do this little bit of servants or we had to till this field, or do whatever we had to do here. But we're all conservation-minded. Okay, well, we had to do a little surgery here. We don't want to impede things. We want to keep moving forward. We want to heal.
2: I struggled with labels early on. This, this idea that I'm not doing it the right way. I'm breaking the rule. know, I'm not really genuine or authentic with our journey. And I'm like, does authenticity matter? No, the right practice matters. The right treatment for the right problem matters. And I actually struggled for that. For So I was doing it and I felt this kind of imposter syndrome kind of idea. I'm like, I don't have to conform to some arbitrary set of rules somewhere. The goal is reducing your erosion, managing your salinity, whatever your goals are. And to do that through that soil health lens while you're protecting your soils, as long as you're accomplishing that, then it opens up to multiple discussions, multiple options. And just like Greg said, we're doing the right thing in the right place, but we're looking at, okay, how do we get back to where we were? How do we repair these things? We had to repair it. How do we help it heal? I think that's a really great way to put it. And I think that's why agronomists are, are skeptical to, to join these things because they get put into a box. And now, as a business person, well, that's that no-till guy. I'm not going to hire that person because I don't want to do that. Well, no. Who wants erosion? Like, I don't know anybody that wants erosion. And so, if that agronomist can help you reduce your erosion, you don't have to be a no-tiller, but let's work on these problems. So, I think that's one of the things holding back my profession.
0: Now, to be clear, both Greg and Lee are vocal advocates for building healthier soils. But as you heard, doing so in a practical way that's right for each individual situation. But does that make it more difficult to make progress, to advance these ideas? Because it's a lot more nuanced than it may appear on the surface.
1: No, it all goes down to we need to lead by example. If it comes up to soil health, I'm sure Lee will agree with me on this one. I'll never tell you what you're doing is wrong. But on the flip side... I prefer you not tell me what I'm doing is wrong. And then does anyone know what's right and wrong? We're just going through with this motion. Well, and I'm going to challenge the fact that there has to be continuous progress.
2: Like I, I, I encourage people to do what Greg's doing. Try new things, push the envelope a little bit, but do it in small spurts and do it wisely. But I think it's okay to get to a level and stay there. I don't know that there has to be this, what is the next thing? What is the new thing? I I think once you get to a level that you've addressed your major issues, that may be fine. You know, so if you're not really identifying specific problems, I hear a lot of people do, well, I've kind of addressed all my problems and I kind of got that. So what do I do next? I'm like, keep doing what you're doing. You've really reduced your risk. Play with some things, try some new things, some different things. That's fun. And if they work, great, go go for it. But I don't think there has to be a next thing. I'm going to challenge that a
3: little bit.
0: All right. And speaking of this uh, leading by example and finding the right balance of soil health practices, immediately after sitting down with both Greg and Lee, we sat down with a couple of other farmers, John Amit and Matthew Kruger to ask about their approaches to tillage. John Ahmet farms near Arvilla, North Dakota, and sells channel seed. He also happened to win our prize of the day at Agronomy on Ice. He primarily grows corn and soybeans in his rotation, but says he does some minimum till, some no-till, and some conventional till. Because in farming, he says, there's no one-size-fits-all solution.
3: As I was visiting with Abby here before we started with this, you know, I had mentioned that it's kind of like the moldboard plow. It's not a one-size-fits-all solution tool and tillage whether it's no-till to full-till is not a one-size-fits-all tool either so i think that the biggest thing is for each operation each individual each piece of ground is deciding what's best fit practice for you your operation and that piece of ground to not only maximize your investments your returns but also to you know minimize your footprint on What you're leaving behind you know so uh and there's a fine line you know economics play into a large role of it lots of things you know do you have the equipment to do it do you have all of those things that you need and the answer is most farms you can't have everything so you you try to do the best you can manage that and and try to find where that line is in the sand for every operation and i think greg said it best previously you know like don't dig on me and i won't dig on you you know but you know i think everybody should to do better because we are stewards of the land and we hope for many generations to come that they're going to make their income off it they're going to feed the world off of it and the only way to do that is to make sure that it's still there Adjoining
0: joining john for this interview is matthew kruger who also doesn't put himself in one box when it comes to tillage but says generally he's more of a minimum till farmer him and his family grow corn soybeans wheat and sunflowers in east grand
4: forks minnesota which is in the red river valley we definitely are more minimal till as well. Um, we used to have sugar beets in our rotation. And I think once we got out of that, that helped out a lot with allowing us to be minimal till. I mean, it's, it's not widely embraced in our area. It is kind of the weird thing and it's never going to work. You're never going to get planted. You have to get that dirt black as it can be because it's got to get warmed up. And now we're on probably our third or fourth year of being pretty much like we harvest the corn and we don't touch it. Like, we will go right into it and plant beans next spring, and that's it. When I remember years ago, before then, we would DMI it, which a DMI is a digs, like, 18 inches in the ground. I mean, it, it flips the soil, and um, we do that, and I think we'd hit it with a chisel plow, too. Like, we just try to get as much black as we could. And honestly, like, it's harder to plant that than it is just regular ground that's just been untouched, and you just plant between the two rows next spring. And, yeah, so, I mean, it's been kind of crazy. I mean, especially this spring, I think we had doubts because we were really wet up here last spring, like, just kept raining. It's like, good lord, we're we ever going to be able to get in these things. And I don't know what dad was looking at the stuff. Like, we're never going to be able to get those cornfields. Like, they are saturated wet. And I don't know. I think, like, those stocks almost kind of like a little bit of wick. Oh, for sure. It's, it's like something. a wet blanket. Yeah. So, and, and frankly, I think one field, we too, the stocks almost kind of allowed us to get across the field. We could seed it. We couldn't run our row crop in it, but we could run our drill in it to get the beans in the ground because it was pretty wet underneath it. But we started to get across, plant our beans in, and we were good to go. I mean, once you get those things in the ground, they'll take off but yeah so we got a lot more minimal till uh which is kind of funny because like when we were going through our uh, equipment analysis on like how many hours we're using on stuff our tractors that used to run chisel plows and tillage like they're not getting any use anymore you know so i mean it's kind of like they're only doing spring work to incorporate fertilizer and in the fall they're just kind of sitting there if we we're doing ditching projects whatever, they're used for that but otherwise you know we have a chisel plow that we haven't touched in pff, three four years like it has, it's been sitting in the corner of the shed i mean it's got more dust on it than anything And similar to a lot of the other examples you've heard on this podcast, Matt was able to start by reducing
0: his tillage on just one field. And when it kept working, he started to expand it to other fields as he could.
4: You know, it was kind of something we had one piece of ground that I think it it was corn. We combined it. And by the time we, like, could get to doing tillage on it, it was too late. It was already froze. And so I know, like, there was a lot of, like, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? Then actually, we put beans in there and did the between-the-row thing. I'm like, oh, this actually worked. And then I think we went to wheat or we went back to corn. And we didn't till that thing. I think we'd vertical tilled the fertilizer in. I think we look back. That field didn't have a chisel plow on it for seven years. And we're like, we can do this. This, this isn't crazy, you know. So I kind of use that field as kind of like a, okay, this works. And now we do it on all of our acres. And I mean, like in terms of fuel savings too, I mean, no, it's just, it's, it's huge. Like you're not going out there running through fuel in the fall. You know, the joke was this fall two guys were out burning up chisel plow shanks because we got dry. I mean, we started off so wet and then July, it just quit raining. So then we were dry through the whole fall. And then guys are complaining on Twitter. They're going, oh, we're running through shovels so quick. And I tweeted a picture saying, well, here's my solution. No till, you know, and oh, we can't do that, you know. And I think beat guys, I think it's hard beats. I, I do get it. Um, I think Greg Amundsen's one who's trying to strip till. I think a few guys are trying to strip till now with their beets, trying to just till where they got to put the beets yeah. in. Because yeah. the sugar beet seed, you only plant the thing, like, an inch in the ground. I mean, the shallower, the better. So, I mean, if you got all that fodder and stuff, that residue, it is hard to, like, get good seed to soil content when you're only an inch in the ground. So, it's worked. I, I haven't say I can't make any complaints. I know this fall, a few neighbors, especially when the rain quit coming, all that residue, I felt, like, kept the ground covered. I mean, I remember going out in July and moving some of those stocks around, and there's still moisture down there. Where, you know, you go to the neighbor's fields, they were all, leaves are starting to curl a little bit, like they were starting to dry out. Both Matt and John said generally, they're feeling
0: like they're finding a pretty good balance between building healthier soils and maximizing productivity and profitability. Here's John.
3: I think it's status quo for us. You know, we, we try to minimize some tillage on some acres and and some of it's conventional and and some of that changes by the year too you know if, if we can get by with not having to make an extra pass we absolutely do just because why do recreational tillage but right. as as far as going forward I think that you know it'll be fairly status quo you know unless we get a curveball or something like that but I think uh, we kind of found a groove that's worked for us and and just kind of keep heading down that path not to say that there isn't new things that someday might incorporate on the farm but as for next year i think it's just to keep on doing what we're doing
4: yeah i say the same thing like we're going to kind of do the same thing we've been doing we have one supplier that our in product, I don't know, they're having issues getting it or something there. So like we have a good in product. We like putting one down with our corn and soybeans in row. We're trying to figure out how that mitigates things. I mean, we have to either change suppliers and I hate doing that kind of stuff when I got a product that I like that I feel like does well, has humic and different kind of stuff in it that is good for the soil. You know, how to change gears and all of a sudden I mean, literally not even be able like try it to be like, oh, let's just try a quarter or two just to kind of see what it's like. It's like, nope, you got to either go all in or, you know, not do it. We use products from Stolar pretty heavily. And that's been more and more like something. We kind of just been like baby stepping into it. Last year is probably the most biggest jump we did. And then this 23 will be 100% everything. We'll have sure. the full program there. So, I mean, it, it's kind of, I don't know, little things, but again, it works.
0: And although both are in a good place currently, they are still finding ways to learn about new ideas and new concepts to explore. As they were discussing where they find the latest information during the interview, they actually started launching into sharing a few ideas with each other, which is exactly why events like Agronomy on Ice or the Dirt Workshop or others are so valuable
3: we're at a great uh, spot in in history just you look at all the technology all the information that's right at our fingertips you know whether you're picking up some ideas on social media or you research it to ask the google you know it's just a wealth of knowledge out there in that aspect and also, our industry has seen such an influx of people in agronomic positions, whether it's the local co-op or our seed company, all of those places, you have so many people. NDSU has been great to, since this is like kind of a, I won't say it's a new program, but kudos to the, to the university for bringing that forward. And, you know, like I said, we're at one of the best spots in history to take advantage of all this. So, you know, you can turn 10 different directions and find what you're looking for. You know, and sadly, you can get misdirected in some of that too. You can get overwhelmed by the amount of information that's out there.
4: Well, I think the thing too, like, I, I'm a big believer in try at least three years. So don't try one thing one year and go, oh, it didn't work, and then abandon ship. You know, like, you got to try things multiple times. But it is different like we're all looking at like the i states you know different things like they've got such a long growing scene they got a lot of stuff like we can't do cover crops post well abby might say no you can but i mean like it it is hard to do cover crops post harvest up here it's too cold like there's not enough heat to get i mean heck we have barely enough heat to get the things off you know sometimes so yeah i mean there's just kind of part of that but um, i agree like i mean twitter i mean you just kind of search hashtag soil health hashtag i mean like you kind of find people who do it you know you find someone like abby who's See who she's kind of talking with, you know, reach out always to, like I said, collaborating and saying, Hey, I have this problem or this question, who can you help me out with? I think you find generally an egg a lot more willingness to share information right. than you do like in small business world a little bit. But even like I got a friend that they bought a let's see, I think they have a 12-row strip till machine. So I kind of told him I'd like to just try it and be like, hey, can I rent it from you? Or you know, hire you to come down and, and be able to have that resource of, of someone who's like, Yeah, absolutely, you know, like either a We'll bring down the machine. Um, he farms about an hour north of me. Well, I guess it'd be an hour. So I like thirty minutes north of me driving. So for him driving a tractor, would be about an hour, hour and a half. But being able to either you know work collaboratively that way. So then A, you're not having to go out and spend the capital. You know, kind of going like, well, I want to try this, but man, I want to go spend a hundred plus thousand dollars on my machine to try it. And if it doesn't work, you know what happens there. Being up here too, we're twenty-two inch rows. I know what John's farm is. We're twenties. Twenties. Oh. How do you spray? Can I ask you? Do you go at an angle? Yep. Okay. Angle or cross the rows. Yeah we we are in 22s and i hate seeing corn like getting smushed or whatever and so this last year we just went in angles because i just like we have to do this and deer guys didn't like it because our technology should hold you on the row and i'm scrolling in here but yeah i just got curious <laughs> i was joking to the guys that have 30s I'm like oh you have so much room to do things you know you can y drop you can fungicide and season all this crap it's like yeah we can't do that so
3: <laughs> yeah the only time it gets to be kind of a trick is if you got a narrow field like a 40 or an 80. oh yeah and probably. you gotta try and not drive down so much so then that's it's kind of do you just go straight back and forth and be darned the consequences because you you wind up having to kind of race track around and then you you know so your your paths on the side wind up getting three or four passes to get to accomplish that to save the center of the field so it's kind of what's better what's worse yeah,
4: and I think the reason why we do narrow up here, and I think I think there's a university. I just heard this on a podcast. They're talking about like they've been showing like north of wherever it was, narrower where it was, narrow rows makes sense. So you go further south, the wider rows. Because I think they're also talking about, like intercropping or relay planting and stuff like that. I think relay cropping would be really interesting to do, or even the um, idea of like. It, I mean, maybe I'll help with this a little bit but like, almost like they have like 40 feet of beans 40 feet of corn 40 feet of beans like that whole concept too because i mean you've seen it sometimes where you like plant a bean crop next to a corn crop and that first pass of the beans you're like dang there's some nice beans here you know so what kind of goes on there that happens but then you're going from a whole level of like okay how do you fertilize it i mean there's a whole this, this is kind of a you open a big can of worms you do that kind of stuff you know well, and Does how, much, like how much work do you want to make for yourself? I know, yeah. exactly. Yeah, because I was not like... how bored are you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But I know we tried a couple of years ago. I still like to try it. My cousin had a air seeder because they deep-band the fertilizer, which is putting the fertilizer right in the ground. Basically, you're not spraying on top and incorporating it. It's getting directed into the, in the ground. They set it up on 22s or 11s, I think, but they could shut everyone off and they could essentially put fertilizer right above the row. So I tried, I think it was two or three years ago, I tried planting winter wheat in the fall, to get it going in 22 inch rows. And so my goal was to put soybeans in between those two to try to get the winter wheat crop off by like mid July and beans plant the right one. We were just going to try it. Like, I mean, we didn't know how it was going to work, but it ended up being dry fall. The winter wheat never really started, but I still think, I mean, that's done. So I just think it'd be kind of fascinating to try that
0: one practice that i know matt mentioned being interested in as well as many other farmers that i've spoken with have mentioned is strip tillage and later in the day at agronomy on ice abby and i were able to sit down with brins north dakota farmer george herman george farms barley wheat corn soybeans pinot beans and canola with his dad and brother and they've been strip tilling for about nine years now
5: i graduated ndsu in 2010 and came back the next year so um A few years later, we went to a Commodity Classic and looked at some strip-till and did a lot of it down there. Quite a few rigs and ended up just deciding to try it. And we've strip till all of our corn acres every year since. I like it. Um, I hate wind erosion. It's awful and it looks terrible. And strip-till never, never blows. I've never seen it blow, which is nice. Uh, A little water erosion. I don't know if you can stop that. You know you get a hill and it will drain downhill and take that strip with it not a lot and it does stay in your field but uh I don't, I don't know if you can stop that if it's wet or you know snow like last year it was worse than normal with that spring snow but uh i like the practice it looks good holds a lot of snow been yielding well some challenges with it um i think conventional tillage is the easy button yeah. <laughs>
0: And while wind erosion is undoubtedly one of the biggest benefits, it was actually dry weather that pushed George and his family to leave that easy button and initially look at strip-till. He said a couple of his favorite practices on the farm are strip-till into barley and no-till into canola ground.
5: We, we grow a lot of malt barley for mainly anheuser Bush, I guess. So a lot of times we grow barley and then we prefer to strip-till into barley. The stubble's really nice. So almost all of our strip-till will be in barley if we can. And then after corn, we'll go to pintos or canola, and we do till our corn. There's not a lot of ways around that, I don't think. I'm sure there is, but (laughs) yeah. And then uh, canola, we we never touch, which we also like. I mean, it's just seeding right into it. I don't know. Like a couple of my favorite practices on the farm, it would be strip till and no tilling into canola ground. Sometimes I wonder, I shouldn't say it, why people till canola ground. It's so nice to till in, to seed right into. So, and then after canola or pinnows, we'll, yeah, we no till either one of them into wheat or barley again. So the following year, we almost, we never till our pinnows either. We're definitely not no till. We're not. I maybe consider minimum till because we do full tillage on some, no till on some, and strip till, and then maybe some minimum till. So a little of everything.
0: And since we know a lot of you listening are curious about strip tillage, Abby and I asked George to describe to us his strip till setup.
5: It's a 2510S deer, 12-row 30, so it's a 30-foot, and it has shanks with coulters that kind of mound it, I guess. So, And we use anhydrous and then dry fertilizer with with an air cart.
0: And now that George is going into his ninth year of strip-tilling, I wanted to know what he likes most about it, what's working, and where, if anywhere, he still wants to improve.
5: I like the placement deep and right below the seed. I think sometimes it takes a little while to get to it. And then you see it shoot up a lot. I have not seen a reduction in fertilizer. Maybe someday, but our yields have been good, though. But we still use like a 1.2 pounds per bushel, which I think is high, especially when you go south. But maybe it's a short season. I'm really not sure. But I've heard like 0.6, 0.8, which is a lot lower than we have to use.
0: All right, well, that is going to do it for today's episode. Agronomy on Ice was such a great place to capture different perspectives on soil health. What I hope came through on today's episode and each one of these interviews was that every one of these farmers and consultants in Lee's case is finding the tillage practice that optimizes soil health and productivity for each individual field in each individual circumstance. And for that reason, it's not helpful to apply labels or identities around these practices but instead, to find the best approach for your situation, with soil health in mind as a consideration for the overall system kind of like surgery i loved lee's analogy there thank you so much to our sponsors of this season of soil sense the north central sustainable agriculture research and education program the north dakota corn council the north dakota wheat commission the north dakota soybean council the north harvest dry bean association the north dakota barley council and anheuser Busch. if you're getting value from this podcast please leave us a rating and review on spotify or apple podcasts and share your favorite episode with us on twitter using the hashtag soil sense we'll be back with another episode of Soil Sense next week.